0: Well, it's so good to be with you. I've thoroughly enjoyed the weekend, thoroughly enjoyed your fellowship, meeting people, some I've met before, so many new people as well, and to have seen what God's been doing amongst us. And I'm very expectant for tonight as well. There are lots of different styles of preaching. And actually, normally, I am what is called an expository preacher, line on line, precept on precept. But um, it's been a bit of a... Schmorgers board, do you know what that is? (laughs) Just lobbing out a bit of food here and a bit of food there. But we've been looking at the theme of pursuing the presence of God and that's been the kind of theme that's run really right the way through the week and we've had some remarkable prophetic words in the prayer meetings building up to the weekend and some remarkable prophetic stuff yesterday and this morning as well and it's so good to be in the flow of what God is doing and it was great to pray this afternoon with some of the people who are involved in this particular congregation we had a good time praying and uh, as we were praying i had uh, a kind of vision about this uh, this campus here and your part in it now i was 50 years in brighton and for 35 of those years i was uh, on the leadership team of a church there and brighton is one of the major university cities in the uk um it, it's probably in between the top 5 and the top 10 in the uk and when our church first started <coughs> there weren't very many students maybe one or two we were a church of about 60 or 70 um and uh, we would have had one or two students But we rapidly grew to 100, 200, 300. And we began to get a vision for the Sussex University campus and also the other um, colleges in in the area, which are now merged into Sussex University. And we began to really cry out to God for breakthrough on the campus. And we saw um, within a space of about, uh, I, I guess it was a year, one particular year, when there were two or three very significant conversions. And once we'd had that breakthrough, the whole thing began to open up. And it wasn't long before we had a student work of around 100 students coming in. And uh, it, it was a terrific work. And it's still going on today. And as we were walking around the campus, the 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 other... The other day, the the other morning, I felt God begin to speak to me about this campus. And um, before I go to that, just to say the prophetic word, um, the prophetic picture I I had this afternoon was, um, you know, goes back to the days of gold mining when the prospectors would go out and they would sense that there was gold and they would put a stake in the ground to claim it they would stake their claim that's where that expression comes from and that would be theirs and I just saw your meeting here at this particular time as putting a stake in the ground on this campus for God but it was on Wednesday morning I think it was we were walking around the the campus here and and praying and uh There was just such a a kind of atmosphere of calm, which is quite extraordinary for a student place. Um, I I couldn't quite get over it. And I I love the kind of architecture and, like, the streets and the wide boulevards uh, and so on. And uh, my wife, Rosie, and I have just recently been in Athens on holiday. And um, we visited the, the Parthenon and the Acropolis, and going around all the ruins. But it's very interesting. This campus here reminded me of what that would be like um, in the days 2,000 years ago. When um, academia and uh, the political world and the whole philosophical world. And the arts and creativity and worship would have all been, by worship, I mean worship of Greek gods, of course, not Christian worship, um, would have all been part of that amazing city. And uh, as we walked around, um, I have got a bit of a kind of romantic imagination. I was imagining it, what, what it must be like. Of course, now it's ruins, but it's a, a great place to go and see. And as I was standing in the, in the main kind of street out out there. It it reminded me of that and I remembered and uh, I thought about this when I was actually in Athens. Um, Paul went to Athens and went to a place called the Areopagus which uh, is just a big rock Um, and what Paul did he went to the Areopagus and he began to preach. Now the Areopagus was a place where various academics and debaters would come and discuss and debate all kinds of philosophical issues. And it was there that Paul saw the statue to the unknown God and used that as a hook for him to proclaim the gospel. Now the interesting thing is that Paul was completely on his own, but just under the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel came to Athens. And... I just thought, I just got a twinge of excitement about what could happen on this campus. You know, it in the Bible, it took one man. You've got more than one person here. Yeah. God can do something huge. And I want you to really hang on to what I say this evening, because I want to try and help and equip you and lift your faith for what God can do and to... Uh, We've been looking at this whole theme of the, the presence of God, pursuing God's presence. And if you've been with us, some of you have been with us in all of the meetings. Well done for staying the course, that's brilliant. Um, but we've been looking at this whole concept of God right through from Eden, um, after God had created mankind. Um, right, right through the Bible there is this theme of God dwelling on. <coughs> with his people that God is a speaking communicating God he's a God who wants to interact with us and we read that in the garden of Eden um, that there was this wonderful relationship God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day there was that easygoing wonderful relationship and God made Adam to relate with him in three ways And this is what makes Adam the supreme pinnacle of creation. And uh, by Adam, I mean, of course, Adam and Eve, I'm not being gender exclusive or politically incorrect here. Okay, God made Adam and Eve. He made mankind. And it was in order that they could relate with God in three ways. And one way was that they could actually hear God speak. God was speaking to them and they could hear and understand what he was saying and they could also speak back to him and communicate with him so it was relational but there was another aspect of that and that was that God actually delegated authority to Adam to rule over the lower order of creation so he was to name the plants And name the animals. So these three ways in which man related with God, theologians have identified by three particular words. The first I would call the prophetic. Now I'm not talking about being a prophet. I'm talking about what the broad word prophetic actually means. It means to be able to hear God speak and to be able to communicate his word and to speak his word. So that is the essence of being prophetic. So God made Adam in this prophetic dimension. He was able to communicate God's word. But he was also able to minister to God and serve God. And that's what we call the priestly dimension. So Adam would not only have heard God speak and speak God's word. The Bible tells us that the whole of creation gave glory to God. Well, how does creation do that? When it's inanimate, well, Adam was to be the mouthpiece of praise for creation. So he spoke the praise that God had put into the trees and the animals and and everything else, the whole of creation. It gave glory to God. It was a reflection of his creative character, of his power and his, his might, his beauty and his order. And Adam was the mouthpiece of all that. And so he was a priest. He was the priest of creation. And he was also a king in the sense that he brought rule and government over the lower order of creation. And the creational mandate was that Adam was to extend Eden. And so he said to Adam and Eve, you're to be fruitful and multiply and the the whole cosmos was in chaos, Adam was to extend Eden. And so that creational mandate was given to him. But of course, when Adam sinned and sin entered into the world, that mandate was lost. Well, it wasn't actually lost, but it was no longer going to be fulfilled in the way that God had directed them. Now, God is sovereign and he knew this was all going to happen. But what we find is that the rest of the Bible is the story of the recovery of Eden. It's the recovery of that glorious temple where the presence of God flooded it and filled it. And where mankind was to be prophetic, prophetic priestly, and kingly and so the temple was to be extended and so what we find is that there are various pivotal points in the old testament where god reminds them of that creational mandate manifests himself in a particular way and there's an understanding that god wants to dwell with humanity one of those times were was jacob when uh, he was running away from his brother Esau and he came to a place and uh, he knew he thought Esau was going to kill him and he starts to cry to God and he might have been praying something like Lord smash Esau or something I don't know what he was praying but he was praying and he was scared but as, as he was praying he suddenly saw this ladder going up from this pillar of stone where he was laying and this ladder had angels ascending and descending on it and God was speaking to him and Jacob said something interesting he said this is none other than the house of God Bethel God's house and there God manifested his presence and it was a microcosm of something bigger that God was going to do and so through the time of Moses and then David and then the temple there was this whole concept of the presence of God, being with his people. Now, we know when we look at the Old Testament that there were times when the people of God were not really living as God had expected them to. And during the time of Ezekiel, the children of Israel had so backslidden that God's judgment was upon them and exile was going to take place. The Jewish people were going to be taken to Babylon, and Ezekiel was actually a prisoner of war, and he'd been captured. And he was a, a, a prophet, and in this state of being, um, if you like, I suppose behind the modern equivalent would be behind the barbed wire fences with the towers with the guards on and the electric fences and so on. He was. The ancient equivalent of that kind of situation that was what he was in. But God began to speak to him and talk to him about a new era, a new covenant, a new time that was coming where what had been promised in Eden with the temple, the glory and the majesty of it, God's presence with his people, Ezekiel looked down through the ages and he saw a temple now the Jerusalem temple had been destroyed and was being destroyed at the same time that Ezekiel was actually there and so what was Ezekiel talking about well there was a restored temple that came a bit later during the time of Haggai and other prophets Zechariah there was a the when the children of Israel went back from Babylon the second temple was built but in the second temple there was never ever a manifestation of the Shekinah glory. It was there in the first temple but even though the second temple had been built and even though there had been an incredible restoration the Shekinah glory had gone. And it never ever came back. Why? Because the temple that Ezekiel was prophesying about was going to be fulfilled under a new covenant in a new era and would be fulfilled when the prophet, priest and king, the second Adam, the one who was God's articulated speech to the human race, the word made flesh, when he appeared, he was the prophet par excellence. He was the priest who came not only to minister to God, but to offer himself as a sacrifice. And he was the king who demonstrated his kingly authority by overcoming Satan and rising again from the dead. And so there's a looking down through the ages that Ezekiel has to this era when this second Adam would come, this prophet, priest and king would come, as the new temple Jesus would be that new temple but he would establish a temple of people of believers who are joined together to be one people who were together prophetic priestly and kingly and that's the mandate that's on the church so we are to be a prophetic people a people who speak of God's word And we do that in the church, but we also do it in the world. We are to be a priestly people who minister to God and give him the sacrifice of our praise. We become living sacrifices. It's all temple language. And we are kings. We rule and reign in life. To many, to as many as received him, he gave authority, exousia, to become sons of God. There is a dignity and a power and an authority that God has put in us as believers. And so, when Ezekiel sees this temple, he sees a river running from the throne. And as we saw this morning, that's, it's not just from the throne, it's from the altar. And as a result of Jesus' death... The Holy Spirit was poured out in power in order that this river of God might begin to flow. So let's read the passage from Ezekiel 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that had risen. Uh, it, was a, it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in. A river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the, to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea the water will become fresh and wherever the river goes every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish for this water goes there for this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to Eneglaim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of great, very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river... There will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So this river flows from the altar and what it is a picture of is the river of God, the Spirit of God, flowing through from Pentecost right up until the time when Jesus comes again so there is what we call an eschatological dimension to this it's looking forward from Pentecost to the time when the new heavens and the new earth will be established when Jesus comes again how do I know that It says so in the last book of the Bible, because as the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, and as we are in the new heavens and the new earth, this river flows right through the centre of it. And, you know, when when we are in that place, we're not going to be floating around on clouds, singing worship songs and playing hearts. Thank goodness. Okay, we will be living normal lives as normal people but completely without sin and forevermore with the lamb on his throne god loving us and the river of life feeding us and nourishing us and strengthening us that's our eternal hope that's where we're going so that in a nutshell is the big view of the bible and the presence of god and that's what we're pursuing that's what we're going after now i want to give this a particular application for us tonight personally and we'll see if we've got time to go a little bit more beyond that but I want to give it a particular personal application to us because the Holy Spirit is very personal to us and that is why the temple of God is not just the church. Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit indwells in us. And when we become Christians, we are born of the Spirit. We are wakened up by what the Puritans used to call the effectual call. God gives us an alarm clock inside, wakes us up, puts His Spirit in us, and we come to repentance and faith and belief in Jesus as our Savior, and we are born again. We have the genetic endowment of our Father through the Spirit within us. So we become sons of God. Jesus is our elder brother. I love the story of the Scottish Covenanter girl in the 17th century when King Charles I of England made a decree that, that everybody had to worship in a particular way with the... what what was the Anglican prayer book and you could not be in what was called the free church and uh, if if you were um, preaching in a free church or meeting in a free church uh, you you could be imprisoned now in Scotland the Covenanters were so angry about this that they met in small house groups and in, in meetings and they refused to bow to the King of England's command. It was quite a dark time in England spiritually. It was in the 1630s. And uh, the story goes that there was this young Scottish Covenanter girl, teenage girl, and she was going to the Covenanter meeting. And on her way, she was stopped by one of the English soldiers. The Redcoats stopped her who suspected that she was going to the Covenant meetings and she said to him he said to her rather where are you going? Now she didn't want to tell a lie and she didn't want to betray the meeting but with a remarkable piece of theological insight she said well you see sir my eldest brother has died and I'm going to my father's house to hear the will read (laughs) (laughs) She knew who she was. She knew she was a child of God. And it's the Holy Spirit in us that gives us. That's our inheritance. But as Ezekiel's river flows on and you sense from the prophet that there's more, there is more. So it's not just enough to be born of the Spirit. We need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so what happened on the day of Pentecost when the uh, disciples were initially baptised in the Spirit we see in the book of Acts that there were several occasions where people, believers were baptised in the Spirit now, quite simply, the baptism in the Spirit just means to be overwhelmed with, immersed in, flooded in the Holy Spirit. We talked a lot about, more about that yesterday, so you will have to ask somebody who was there if you want to know, know more, and I'll explain that to you. Was it recorded, Rhys? Yes. Yeah, so you can listen yeah. to you can listen to the to the podcast i haven't got time to open that up i'm just doing this by way of revision in a sense so there is the baptism in the spirit but there are also fillings of the spirit when we are in a particular situation where we need special help there are times when the spirit comes upon us so we see uh, when Stephen preached, it says, and Stephen filled with the Holy Spirit, and the tense of the verb there suggests that that was a filling at that time, and Stephen filled with the Spirit, and he preached his sermon. It's another t- time when it says, and Paul filled with the Spirit. So there will be times in your Christian life when you do need special help, and you can be filled with the Spirit. He is available. Now, we get a a paradox here in the sense that we have an anointing that abides with us. So when you've received the Spirit, he abides. He's with you, he's in you, and you can always draw on him. But there are times when we need that bit of extra kick, that bit of extra power and he will do that. Now, they are what I might call the crisis experiences of the spirit. But we need to learn also, just as Ezekiel moved on in this river and the river became richer and fuller and deeper, that there is, there is a walk that we are to have in the spirit, that we walk in the spirit. Now before I come to that, I just want to mention another verse, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, where Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. Now I've often heard preachers illustrate that by saying, well, you know, you, you have the Holy spirit, but you know, sometimes, you know, we get a bit worn out and it's as though the spirit isn't there and we come and we have a top up. And, uh, you know, I've seen them illustrate it with a, a jug of water and a glass. And, you know, you pour the water out of the glass and you come and you get filled. Now, the tense of the verb there is the present continuous. It says be, being filled with the Spirit. It's something that you continually do. So you keep coming for a top up. You know, you empty out and the jug comes and fills you up. Doesn't mean that. Okay. It means... When it says be filled with the Spirit in that sense, it means be preoccupied with the Spirit. Now, do you remember when you first fell in love? I do. I remember the night I met Rosie. I came home. I was, could not stop thinking about her. I couldn't stop talking about her. I was an absolute pain in the neck to all my mates about this girl I'd met. I was preoccupied with her. Now, that's what Paul means there in that particular case, be filled with the Spirit. So, how do you do that? Well, you sing and make melody in your heart with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's how you stay filled with the Spirit. So, when I was talking yesterday about the realised presence of God, that's what you do. You realise he's there, and you worship him. So when you're in a traffic jam and you're stuck, you don't jump up and down and get mad and cross. You put on a worship album and you are filled with the Spirit. You're under the control of the Spirit. So we are to live like that, being under the control of the Spirit by yielding to him moment by moment. Now Paul develops this particularly in the book of Galatians. Now the Galatians were a church who'd started really well. And Paul commends them. And uh, he says you, you started well. You, you were running well. But they began to slip into what we call legalism. And that was trying to obey the Jewish law to find favour with God. Legalism, quite simply, a simple definition of legalism, is doing works to achieve righteousness. Okay, righteousness is a gift, and it is the antithesis of the gospel. And Paul says to them, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So he says to them, "Um, you started in the Spirit. Why are you going back now to the law? And he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And then to correct that, a pivotal chapter, actually one of the key chapters in the whole of the New Testament, is Galatians chapter 5, where he exhorts them. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And he he, he urges them, and he says this, and he says it a couple of times. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He then outlines the works of the flesh, and it's in that particular context that he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, goodness, self-control, patience, and so on, gentleness. So it's not the fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruit, it's one fruit with all these different expressions. Now, how do we do that? We walk by the Spirit, or we walk in the Spirit. Now, the Greek word for walk there is the word peripateo, from which we get the English word peripatetic, which means to walk about. So, what is it saying? Walk about in the Spirit. The whole rounds of life's activities you conduct In the spirit. So when you're doing a day's work, when you're with the family, putting the kids to bed, whatever you're doing, when you're having a game of football, skiing down a mountain, whatever it is, you you tell the things that I like, can't you? (laughs) You do it with an awareness that the spirit of God is with you. Everything you do, you are peripatetic in the spirit. And it's a similar concept to the ephesians five eighteen verse so we are filled with the spirit we walk about in the spirit we give ourselves to the spirit so we have a spirit consciousness so we are never in a situation where we are taken by surprise when we live like that and that is living in the flow of the river but it's interesting how by verse 25, we get again this concept, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Although the word is translated walk, the Greek word is different there from the verse a little bit earlier. The Greek word there is stoichio, which means to walk in line. You keep in step with the Spirit. Now that has two implications. One is that we obey the Spirit. So when the Spirit prompts us to do something, we obey him. We keep in step with him. But the whole idea of Stoicio is it's like soldiers marching in a line and keeping in step. It has a relational aspect, one with another. And so we work it out in our relationships together. So a spirit-filled community that are walking in step with each other demonstrate that they're in the river. That's a sign of it. You know the river's flowing in this church because we love one another. We don't argue with each other. We don't criticize with one another. We don't grumble. We don't moan at the leaders. We just get on with loving one another. Now we have to work at some things. For that to happen, but the Spirit helps us to do that. And that's why we need the fruit of the Spirit. Now the other aspect of growing in the Spirit and flowing in the river is that we do actually live supernaturally. And so Paul gives us gifts, tells us about gifts of the Spirit. So the gift of speaking in tongues, the gift of prophecy, discerning of spirits, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, revelation these are supernatural gifts and it's important for us to remember that christianity is a supernatural religion now i find actually when i'm living in the sense that i'm giving myself to the holy spirit being filled with the spirit in the sense that i've been talking about the gifts just flow naturally so i can be standing at the bus stop see a man and say I'm a Christian, you look ill, would you like me to pray for you? And sometimes they will say yes, and sometimes they will say no. But you do that. So how does Nick have words of knowledge? He doesn't have words of knowledge by kind of screwing himself up into some kind of frenzy. He walks in the spirit, (laughs) in the sense that I'm talking about, and God speaks. It's quite natural. It's a natural thing that happens. And so there will be times... As I've said, when the Spirit will come upon us. Now, I've been in meetings when the Spirit has come upon me and I've brought a mega prophecy. And it's like I hadn't even known what I was going to say until I opened my mouth. Um, and I, I know others have had, had that experience. There is that kind of being flooded with the Spirit. So as the, as the river is flowing, there is this sense at a personal level. Now, the thing is, in The everyday situations of life, we, if we are walking in the spirit, will find that God will be with us. And I'm just going to illustrate this by an incident that happened to me in Athens on my recent holiday. And um, we'd had an amazing day at the Acropolis. We'd got pretty exhausted and uh, we were on the underground And we were just coming up the subway up some steps when there were a couple of teenage boys. And it was about five o'clock in the evening, and uh, there were lots of people about. And these boys were giving out leaflets, and they were, but they were messing about as well. Suddenly, one of them threw some water at me, and I was distracted. And the next thing I knew, the head of one of them was just here. I'd got a pocket. There, with my passport buttoned in and my purse buttoned in, when I got back to my hotel, I realized they'd gone passport and my purse. We were going to catch a flight the next day at 12 o'clock. I hadn't got a passport. Phoned the embassy, the embassy was closed. How was I going to get home? Made a few phone calls. It looked as though I wasn't going to be able to get back until Friday, so I said to Rosie you're going to have to go to the airport, get a taxi, you, you have to go to the airport on your own, I'll just have to fend for myself. Now, I've said it like that, and it sounds as though it was easy, I tell you, it was incredibly distressing, it really was very, very distressing, I was very uptight about it, and it was like, what do I do? I'm. Um, i made some inquiries, got through to the embassy in England, a helpline, and they said there is absolutely no way the Athens embassy can see you tomorrow or Wednesday. It will have to be Thursday and you will have to get another flight. Um, so this was incredibly distressing. I went to bed that night really desperate. I don't know what to do. Now, this is where it's important that we don't let... Now, I'm using this as an illustration because God taught me something through this. I thought, what do I do? I couldn't sleep. I began to pray, and I prayed in tongues, and I prayed from midnight until 5 a.m. nonstop in tongues, just crying to God to know what to do. At about 5 o'clock, God spoke to me and said, pack your case, book a taxi... Be at the embassy by eight o'clock and I'll show you what to do. That's what it means to walk in the spirit. So to cut a long story short, I did get my passport and I was on the flight at midday. There were several things that happened that were totally miraculous. Now, what we but what what God showed me was this was an incident that was a hassle. It was a hindrance to my life. But if I walk in the Spirit, then God will show me what to do. Now, if I hadn't got the passport, I would have still been walking in the Spirit. Okay, it's important to say that. Life doesn't always work out like that. Not everything happens as well as that. I know that. But if we learn to walk in the Spirit, what we get... It's God's take on our situation. We get his view of it. He's sovereign over everything. We get his view on it. Okay, so what does it mean to be in the river? Well, everything that I've told you on a personal level. I'm just going to land this now by saying that it is also, I believe, a prophetic scripture about what God wants to do in his church. And as this river gets richer and fuller and deeper, it is a picture to me of the progression of Christianity from the day of Pentecost to the time when Jesus comes again. Now, on, just after the day of Pentecost, do you remember the story when Peter and John healed the, the man at, at the gate of the temple who, who was lame? And uh, it drew a big crowd, and Peter began to preach. And he preached about Jesus, and he said, Jesus, who heaven must receive until the restoration of all things, that's the second coming, but there will be times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord until that happens. And so through church history, There have been times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. This year we've celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. That was a time when God's Spirit moved very powerfully in Europe. It was an incredible move of the Spirit of of God. And there have been times, you've had them in this nation In the early 20th century, in the early 1900s, when the Salvation Army came to Vancouver and William Booth's son, Herbert Booth, was here. Incredible revivals happened in Canada. In England, in uh, in the 18th century, in the time of Wesley and Whitfield, amazing revivals happened. Whole communities turning to God. And I believe it's time for another revival. I believe that the only way the church is going to survive is something happening that goes beyond what we are doing now. And I believe that that is thoroughly biblical for us to cry out for another time of refreshing. And. Over the last year, I've been preaching a lot about revival. God's been building in an expectation. I grew up in a family that had a revival consciousness. My grandparents on my on my father's side were in the Booth revival. And I'd just like to read you a little snippet of a revival my grandfather was in. And this was in 1901. And he'd been sent by William Booth to the city of Hull, which is in the north of England. And on the train on the way, he covenanted with God that he was going to start half-nights of prayer, regardless of what, the, in the Salvation Army, they didn't call them church members, they called them soldiers. Regardless of what the soldiers said, he was going to do it. When he arrived at the station he was met by a delegation from people from the Salvation Army who said, we believe God has told us to start half-nights of prayer. So the two things had connected. So I've actually got my grandfather's handwritten diary with this in, um, and uh, he, he says, the prayer meeting started well, many people coming. Then they tailed off, but I kept going. It's in his handwriting, I kept going. He said, then they came back one by one. Then the fire fell and revival came. Now, I found some newspaper cuttings of what that revival looked like. Now, the language, it's the Salvation Army. It is early 20th century, so you'll have to kind of get through that. But look at the impact of this. Okay. Another desperate night attack was made on Saturday night by the warriors of the Corps. We met at the barracks at 10.30 and went forth to storm the enemy's ranks. We pitched outside one of the large pubs in the district, right in the heart of the enemy's camp. After some sharp shouting, between 50 and 60 drunkards came to the hall, some smoking and singing songs while the meeting was going on. After faith dealings, eight came to the cross. Here's the next night. Continued bombardment by Captain McLaughlin and fighting Billy (laughs) McLeod. I love it. Great crowds swept into the barracks, where through prayer and fire, the soldiers danced, laughed and cried all at once, bringing two souls to the mercy seat. Then 22 soldiers rushed to the midnight battle for the souls of drunkards, harlots, thieves and vagabonds and brought 67 of them to the barracks where they heard the terms of peace from the messengers of the king and nine made an unconditional surrender. On Sunday we captured nine more prisoners. (laughs) Love the language. For the weekend, 20... And that goes on night after night after night. Two pages uh, of of reports. Hundreds of people saved. And the key to that was prayer. And I had the joy of living with my grandfather. He died when I was eight. And I remember very clearly his passion, his love for Jesus. He was uh, in his 70s when when he died. But he was a, a young man. And he was on fire for God. And I, I've lived with that passion for revival ever since. On my mother's side, they were, my grandparents were family friends of Evan Roberts. They were converted in the Welsh Revival. And I had the joy of meeting Evan Roberts's sister when, um, in the early 60s when I was first baptised in the Spirit. And I talked to her. It was in the cottage where Evan lived and where he grew up. And I said, what was the secret of the revival? What was the secret with Evan? And she said, well, you see that shed. Uh, Is Millie here? Yeah. Yeah. I nearly said it in a Welsh accent. <laughs> 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 he said, you, 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 you see that shed at the bottom of the garden. Evan, when he was a teenager, he was 26 when the revival broke out, remember? As a teenager, he would come home from the coal pit, having worked down in the mine as just a young boy. His face was blackened with coal. And, of course, they didn't have bathrooms in those days. They would have a bath in front of the fire. She said Evan would come home from the pit, his face blackened with coal, but he wouldn't get in the bath. He'd go into that shed and he would be there for hours. And when he came out, the tears as he cried to God for revival had washed his face clean. That was the passion. Now I believe God is going to bring about a passion. And I just sense the Holy Spirit speaking to me about this to some of you. That not everybody can live at that degree of intensity of intercession. We're not all called to do... We are all called to pray and intercede. But I believe God is going to give some people here tonight an anointing for intercession and a burden for intercession that will light some fires, that will ignite some people. Now, I believe God is going to do something absolutely mighty Now, I believe the key is spirit-filled people, spirit-filled churches, living in community, obeying the scripture, living in the way that I've outlined, filled with the spirit. And in the sovereignty of God, when he's ready, he will break through. But I want to tell you this, he will break through. And if we are earnest in prayer, fervent in our spirit, crying passionately to God, I believe there will be such an outpouring. And wouldn't it be amazing to walk along there and see clusters of students praying for one another and little groups? It will happen. I prophesy it will happen. You will see it you will see it. I'm praying that I see something like it before I go to glory. I'm 73, I want to live long enough to see something great happen. I believe I will see it. I'm in faith that I will. I've lived with that longing for it and I'm urging you, be in the river. Get in the river. Swim in it. Don't paddle around in it. Swim in it. Be absorbed in it. Be flooded with it. Be prophetic. Be priestly. Be kingly, rule, have authority in the spirit. And I believe God will bless this place. God's hand is on you as a church. I tell you, the team, have, we've been talking about it. This has been an amazing few days. It has been an amazing few days. God is with you. For goodness sake, don't muck it up. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't you dare mess it up. Don't be like the Galatians. Don't you dare mess it up. Go with it. Go with it. Go with what God is doing. And you, I believe you will see a mighty outpouring of the Spirit. Amen.